even if we are a large company with lots of resources, we have to make selection within a certain period of time to say, this effort was a good effort, it didn't work, it's probably time to refocus that team and those people on something that was getting a lot more traction. And so periodically when we do that, people ask, is Google committed to products? Yes, we are. In order to build great products, you have to stop doing other products that are not going to mature. And that's just a natural part of managing innovation. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Thomas Kurian, the CEO of Google Cloud, reflecting on how Google manages innovation. Thomas took the reins in 2019 after a 20-year career at Oracle. And here's a fun fact. He has an identical twin who is also a technology CEO and who also worked at Oracle, but at a different time. In this episode, we present a wide-ranging conversation with Thomas. You'll hear him talk about how he has grown Google's cloud business and how he thinks about talent management. He also shares insights on sustainability and the future of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This is an excerpt of a conversation Thomas had with Adrian Booth, a senior partner in our Silicon Valley office during a recent gathering of global business leaders. Now, here's Adrian. Thank you for coming and sharing your time. It's a real privilege to have you here. But let's start with the, um, the business environment. You talk to customers every day, CEOs, executives. What is your view on the biggest challenges they're facing and what they can do to maintain resiliency in the current environment? The economic environment is quite different in different parts of the world. If you look at uh, our conversations in North America, people have a lot of uncertainty about where the economy is going. When we look at South America, for example, Brazil, we see a lot of anxiety around currency devaluation. If you look at Asia Pacific and Europe, the general economic environment is, at least from our view, extraordinarily strong. And so despite the you know, anxiety about energy prices and what's going on in Ukraine. But all of them have a common thread. The last three years were very challenging because of the pandemic. They realized that they have to take some lessons out of it for what's going to happen for the next phase of growth. And some of them are very simple but important lessons. You know, when we, we have many banking clients in Europe as well as in North America, one of the primary reasons, if you actually measure the reason people go to a retail branch of a bank, 92% go because they deposit checks. Now, during the pandemic, Almost all the banks allowed you to submit a check by taking a picture on your phone and submitting it. The likelihood you're going to go back to that branch now that the pandemic has lifted is almost zero. But all of the expertise that the bank had, wealth management, advisory, loans, everything was tethered at the branch. Um, And so many institutions, the CEOs are trying to figure out How do they use digital to get the next phase of advantage rather than say the pandemic happened and we're back to the way we used to be before? 
And how do you think about Google Cloud's differentiation in the cloud hyperscaler space? You know, our vision for cloud computing is extremely simple. If you look at what the smartphone really did for consumers, it took a device that was a computer, a communication device, an internet access device, and a camera, and it made it so easily accessible that everybody had it with them all the time, and it made technology extraordinarily easy for consumers to use. Our vision for cloud computing is to simplify access to technology for businesses and to make it so easy that anybody can get access to it and use it extraordinarily easily. So when we look at how people are working with us, it really depends on the industry and what they're trying to do. When we talk to clients in retail, we say you can really transform your business if you observe what the customer is doing every day. So for example, with a leading beauty retailer, we said, today the, the, the customer comes to you and to your beautician once every three months, and you see them for probably four hours a year. What happens if you observe them every single day? So we helped them build a beauty advisor application. It led to a 42% lift in usage and conversion for them. So it's understanding that customer in a deep way. If you look at automotive companies, they've all been challenged with supply chain because they ran a just-in-time supply chain, but they really only saw the first-level component suppliers. They never saw the, the second and third-level component suppliers. Also, as the economy shifted from combustion engines to if you will, electric vehicles, they started competing for parts, not with other car companies, but they were buying, for example, computing supplies, competing with Google, Apple, and others. And so they were no longer the primary procurer in that space. So we're helping them using our tools to do much more accurate supply chain visibility and planning. When we look at the threats happening around the world with cyber, Every cyber event, to be honest, is a black swan event. The day before, the organization thought it was secure. The day after, they realized it was not. And a huge percentage of them start with human error. When we listen to that, our approach is simplify. You can't bolt on more tools and more processes. People have been investing for years in cyber tools, and they still get uh, attacked and compromised. And so our approach has been simplify security, simplify cyber, so that you can operationally manage it and protect yourself. So the common thread is, by simplifying, make it accessible to everybody in the same way that the smartphone made computation available to people in a totally different way than before. Wonderful. Well, let's get to the topic of um scaling growth. Maybe share a little bit, what can we learn from how you have enabled growth at scale? We had a lot of challenges when we started this growth path. Google was a consumer company. It had no understanding of the enterprise software business and how to serve 
clients. I started that organization and the journey in 2019. Uh, nobody told us there was something called COVID that would happen a year later. At one point, 82% of our go-to-market organization had never met. They had never met their manager. They had never met their colleagues. And they only had met their clients digitally. So we had to do a lot of things to scale the business. But I would say we, we, we focused on it in four important ways. People, products, processes, and then the values and culture we wanted to enable. So people, when we started, we did not have many functions. You know, we didn't have a commercial legal department. We had more salespeople in California than the rest of the world. So we had to really build a global leadership team, and we had to do what we call aspirational hiring. If you look at you know, the technology industry, the common thing is you have a team that takes you from zero to 500 million, another team that takes you 500 million to a billion, another team that takes you a billion to five billion. We've crossed all those boundaries in two and a half years. So if we were doing that, we'd be hiring, firing people every six months. So we, the first thing we did was identify the areas that we wanted to be world-class at and bring in the right leadership aspirationally, not for where we were gonna be three months out, but three years, four years out. The second thing we had to do was to focus on the things that are below the surface. Uh, when I say the below the surface, contracting, legal processes, regulation that happens on technology companies in hundreds of countries around the world, building out data centers. We were in six locations. We're now in 34 countries, building out the supply chain, distribution centers. So all the invisible things that are required to be super efficient in order to scale. Because when you're small, if you're inefficient, it's okay. But when you're large, even inefficient, it's extraordinarily challenging. So that was number two. Number three on products, we felt we had to focus. Google's great at innovating technology. We, as a leadership team, we, we say internally, if you let a thousand flowers bloom, that sounds great. But if you don't clean up the garden, soon you'll have tens of thousands of dead flowers. So we had to be extremely specific on which markets we were focused on and which markets we were not going to focus on because we needed to be known for being exceptionally good at certain things. And lastly, culturally, imagine you're an engineer at Google. You work on something. The next morning, you put it up online and billions of people use it for searching or advertising or maps or Gmail. There's a plus and a minus to that. The plus is you get instantaneous feedback. The minus is you don't have customers. You know, who do you call? You're gonna pick up the phone as the head of search and say, let me call all citizens in California? I mean, that's not possible. So we had to change how we approached the understanding and the work with customers. And that was one of the key things was to build that, that cultural tenet into the organization that you can do exceptional innovation by understanding customer needs deeply 
and engaging with them. And so those are the four things that uh, we had to put together. Wonderful. I wonder if I could pull on the um, aspirational hiring just for a bit. I'm sure we'd all love to do more aspirational hiring, but I'm sure it's harder than it sounds. <laughs> what, what did you have to do personally to make sure that, that you got the right people in the right seats? We've always felt people come to work at an organization, not certainly things like remuneration, all of that's important, but they come to work for a mission. And our mission is really to make the technology that powers Google and all the innovation we're making and building available to everybody on Earth. We want an entrepreneur in Poland, a person working in a ministry in Africa, an individual uh, you know, sitting as a small business in Indonesia to have the same technology that sits and powers Google. And that mission, I think, attracts people. And during the pandemic in particular, where most people were joining us without that person-to-person -person connection, that common purpose is what kept the organization focused. Thank you. Let's uh, talk a little bit about data. So we've heard for years now the explosion of data just keeps on, you know, the velocity just keeps on increasing, you know, with yes. seemingly no end in sight. And I imagine every company is wrestling with the data question. What is your view on what companies are doing right and what they're doing wrong as it relates to data? If you look at the heart of Google and you ask what is Google's real core competency, it's the world's largest data processing company. You know, if you look at search, it's a data processing problem. If you look at maps, it's a giant data processing problem. And so when we help clients, we always say, think of two different elements. One is, what's the business problem you're trying to solve? And secondly, what's the thing you couldn't do with data before that you want to solve? So we worked with a large financial institution regulation in financial services continues to accelerate, the time it took them to process the regulatory requirements and the liquidity models was about three and a half to four weeks. During a steady state economy, that's reasonable, but when the market is going through volatility, the regulators are saying, I'm seeing your institution as of three and a half weeks ago. We help them using our platform, shrink that to 30 minutes. And it was by looking at what is it that they needed to solve for and how do you change it in a very simple and efficient way. Sometimes the data problem comes because of change in the industry. So if you look at the retail business, when you can buy the same product from every retailer, the nature of how people make the decision on what retailer to choose is not based on whether the product is available, but how quickly you can get it to me. One of the things that we saw was that the last mile delivery companies, they were planning their delivery cycle nightly. When e-commerce shifted that window to 
hey, I need it today, not tomorrow, you are actually planning during the day. Given the scale of their operations, it used to take them seven hours to plan their fleet. They do it today with us in four minutes. They're iterating their plan every four minutes, which allows them to show the, the e-commerce merchants where their fleet is and when they can get you know, things picked, packages picked up because the trucks have to pick up and deliver. As part of that, you know, lots of interesting insights came out. We asked them, how do you plan for traffic? And they were like, we don't use traffic because seven hours ahead, you don't know what the traffic conditions are. When you move it to much more real time, you have the ability to solve that. And so what I would say is a lot of the technology that we're building is to make it possible for people to say, can I get instantaneous visibility to the information in my company or even outside my company so that I can solve a business problem, whether it's efficiency, uh, customer service, et cetera, in a very different way than you could before. Let's, let's move up the stack a little bit. So data you know, enables artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's an incredibly fast-moving space. Uh, the pace of innovation there is huge. I think a lot of people are saying this will be the competitive differentiator for many winners in the industry going forward. But would love your view on just kind of what's the state of play of artificial intelligence and machine learning, and where are we at? Are we sort of in the first inning? Are we in the fifth inning? And again, what are companies doing well with it? Where do you think they can improve? You know, I, our view is that AI is going to be much more pervasive than people think today. So the first point I would make is it is actually being used far more widely than people see. You just don't realize it's being used to one, automate a process, enrich the data in some cases, or provide insights you couldn't get before. Um, an example of the last one, getting insights you couldn't do before, with one of the largest ultra-luxury hotel chains. They were trying to understand what people recommended their hotel. The surprising statistic, which they did not know, was that far more people were recommending their hotels who had never stayed there than those who had stayed there. <laughs> it turns out that they were the taxi and Uber people in the in that city, and the reason they were doing it was that people who stayed at that hotel typically, let's say, tipped or rewarded very well. <laughs> the most successful marketing campaign they ever did was to that audience after they got the data. So AI can help you, one, automate a process, two, simplify customer engagement or interaction, Third, identify an insight you may never have seen through the data because human beings have a lot of biases. If you were to ask anybody like us, an ultra-luxury chain, do you believe that most of the recommendations came from people who never stayed there? You would have a hard time believing that. But the data and the fact they could understand that data helped them get that insight. So our, we're very optimistic while being cautious about the application of AI in certain domains and the need to do it ethically, but we're very optimistic about how quickly 
It's helping people solve real problems every day. Maybe just on how quickly this space is moving, meaning AI and ML. Um, I work with a lot of chief information officers and chief digital officers, and sometimes they'll tell me their job is to enable the business. And my response back to them is, you don't need to enable the business, you need to inspire the business. Because quite frankly, most business executives don't have the capacity to understand what the art of the possible is, yeah. precisely because it's moving so fast. So any, any advice? How does a non-digital native business executive just stay on top of what the art of the possible is and therefore be, be able to dream of some of the outcomes that you just mentioned here? I'll tell you how we at Google think about some of the problems. We often say that users or customers express what they want, they don't express what they need. And it's because they are bounded by the belief that this is all they can do. For example, just a very practical thing, if you look at cybersecurity, people fundamentally feel, hey, more users are accessing more of my systems, and the more systems they access, and the more users that access, and from more places, by definition, it's going to be less secure. And by the way, my data is getting more and more valuable, so it's an infinite race to just letting myself get hacked. And our view is, why should that be the case? Just as a practical matter, our consumer services are some of the largest ones in the world. We get attacked every single day. And so, you know, our general view has been the way you should approach a technology problem is not circumscribed purely by what's possible now, because that's the way that a human being who doesn't know what's possible, will it, they express what they want. They are not aware of how it could be solved differently. And so we always teach our employees, think about what could be possible. If you just sat down in, in 1999 and said, there's going to be billions of websites created every day, and within a matter of a handful of seconds after they're created, somebody could find them. People have said that's literally impossible. If somebody said you could fly from here to Kazakhstan and have a view of every road and a digital representation of the entire world, people would have said that's not possible. They would have said, okay, I'm going to give you instructions on driving in PDF instead of this, because that's what they thought was possible. And so I would suggest you know, always looking at What's the experience you're trying to solve for? And how do you think not about what people really are expressing that they want, but what sits behind it as what they need? And that's when you really try in the transformative breakthrough. Wonderful. That sort of begins to pull on this notion of innovation. Is there tension between innovation and scale? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? You mentioned before the 10,000 dead flowers. So it requires some focus, but you also want to enable broad-based innovation while scaling a business like Google Cloud as fast as it's grown? It's a great question. We've got three different elements that we need to balance. We need to balance risk, we need to balance opportunity cost, and we need to balance scale. So risk, if we don't reward our employees for taking risk, particularly given the success of some of our platforms, Nobody would want to work on anything new uh, because, hey, if I work on search 
or on, on our core cloud products, why would I ever take a risk to work in a new area? So we explicitly, through our rewards and recognition process, as an example, we internally use something called OKRs, Objectives and Key Results, and we explicitly ask teams, you cannot set goals to be 100%. You have to set so that somewhere between 85 and 100 is what is considered the best team. A team that hits 100% didn't stretch far enough. We also have a process internally when things go wrong, we use it as an opportunity to learn why things went wrong, and we call that our blameless postmortem process. And that is designed so that individuals don't feel I took a risk and then everybody started yelling at me when something went wrong. So that's the risk side. The opportunity cost side, remember every engineer working in an organization could be working on a project A or could be working on a project B. So even if we are a large company with lots of resources, we have to make selection within a certain period of time to say this effort was a good effort, it didn't work, it's probably time to refocus that team and those people on something that was getting a lot more traction. And we, we have certain time windows when we plan it so that the products get sufficient time to be given an opportunity to mature, but if it doesn't, we move people. And so periodically when we do that, people ask, is Google committed to products? Yes, we are. In order to build great products, you have to stop doing other products that are not going to mature. And that's just a natural part of managing innovation. And the third one, I think, is we always ask, you know, innovation does not always mean something new. It could be a new approach to something relatively mundane. So, for instance, today when we ask CIOs, can you tell me how good your cyber posture is? They don't know how to articulate it. And if you're a CEO, you want to treat cyber as a risk that you can manage. All risks in companies are insurable. Cyber is the one risk that if you buy cyber insurance today, it's extraordinarily expensive. If you buy it after an incident, it is really expensive because you have proven that you don't know how to do it. So our approach is you should be able to explicitly measure your cyber posture and you should be able to reinsure yourself because now you can say, this is my cyber posture. And those are examples of things where it's not a new problem, but it's a different way. Because if you can measure your posture, you then have visibility to it, you can address it, you can fix things, and therefore, you're, through that visibility, you can both lower your risk, but you also can reinsure yourself. Sometimes we're taking an existing problem and changing the approach to solving it. Wonderful. Maybe uh, shifting topics a little bit. I know there's been some discussion on, on um, ESG, and if I pull on the sustainability one uh, in particular, what is Google Cloud doing to both be sustainable itself but enable your customers to be sustainable? Sustainability is a very deep value that the founders of Google held and permeates our entire organization. We have been carbon neutral since 2007, 15 years now. Those are not simple problems for us. So the first thing we've done is to say, 
We want every engineer in our organization to identify ideas that will really fundamentally reduce our carbon footprint. And I'll give you two examples of things that drive that. One, when you take power off the transmission line, it's typically running at 240 uh, you know, kilovolts. When a con computer system consumes it, it typically does it at 100. A lot of power is lost in that conversion. One of our engineers said, let's really optimize it. So today, when you take power off the grid to run a Google computer system, if you need 100 watts, you only need 106 watts off the grid. So we've more than halved right there. And we share that, you know, there's an article that we published in Science to help other companies do the same. The second example of things that our engineers came up with was, hey, if you look at renewable energy in many parts of the world, there's not sufficient renewable energy sources. So we are buying and leading that transition. We buy a very large amount of renewable energy to drive the cost down. But our view still is the less energy consumption, the better. Again, this is how we ask, what's the problem you're really trying to solve? One of our very smart engineers said, hey, I, I noticed something interesting. We're spending more power cooling the coolant to cool the computer than actually running the computers. So he had an interesting insight. He said, who said a computer can't run hot? And the theory in the industry for 30 years was computers should run between 40 and 54 degrees Fahrenheit. He said, let's run it hot. And it's remarkable how much power consumption that saves. So the first thing we always say is, if we're going to go and help the world, we should first fix our own house so that people can say Google is actually taking its own steps forward. And we plan to get done within the next few years because we're pushing very hard on our teams to make sure we are able to meet the goal that we stated publicly for 2030. The second thing we say with ESG when we talk to clients is they have a very hard time. The, the central problem with ESG goals is the lack of visibility. So when we ask people, can you understand truly your impact in sourcing, manufacturing, and distributing products, they just don't have that visibility. So we are working with an ecosystem of data providers to help people have visibility of that entire ecosystem. So a very specific example, take a long-term client and partner of ours. They said, hey, their consumers really care that their products in the way they're built, sourced, manufactured, and distributed don't cause an impact on the environment. We help them using our tools visualize where they were sourcing, for example, palm oil, milk, various kinds of natural resources, and what impact on the environment that was having by having a digital view of all the land from which they were sourcing products. So by knitting that picture together for them, which is not an easy task at all, because most of the time they say we source from somebody and we don't know where they're sourcing from, 
It provides people visibility. And I always say the most important thing to meet ESG goals is to first visualize your own data and understand it. And when you understand it, people just like our smart engineer who said, hey, I noticed more power is being used to cool things than to run the computers, they will find the solutions. But until you have that visibility, it's very difficult to address are you meeting your sustainability objectives or not. You have mentioned the global nature of Google Cloud a few times. Any thoughts on how you balance culture and the need to drive consistency in a global with, you know, sometimes very local needs? The nature of technology, particularly when you look at cloud computing, it's seen as the new technology foundation for companies in different parts of the world. So culturally, we have a number of things to manage. There's different regulatory regimes in different parts of the world. In Europe, for example, there's a lot of concerns around governance accessing user data. So data sovereignty is a big question. If you look at sustainability, it means different things in different parts of the world. When you talk to Europeans, they have different, different elements that they see as sustainability and the energy transition than, for instance, in the United States or Asia Pacific. Our model is relatively simple. Whenever there's regulation or complicated requirements around data privacy and other things, it is to solve it because we want our products to be used in every country, but to put it into the platform so that people don't have to deal with the complexity themselves. We have many large clients that are global. If we can do it once in the platform, all companies can get access to. Second thing, culturally, we always say we are a global company. The reason we have that is to appreciate what's happening in each local market. And secondly, can we adapt and evolve both our people, our processes, but also our technology to adapt? Because every time we find a challenge, you know, we always find there's a solution. Great, and I'm, I'm gonna do, time is flying by here, so I'm gonna do one more question then open it up uh, for, for uh, any of you to ask some questions here. But my last question is around the future of work and hybrid work. Big topic. First of all, what, what is Google Cloud's policy right now? Where do you think it's going? Um, and then any advice for, for, uh, for organizations here is how they think about that question going forward for their organizations. When you think about Google, most people think about the software engineers at Google. We actually have many, many different roles at Google. And our hybrid work policy represents the nature of the role so first of all, we have a number of people whose very job has to be at a physical facility. The people who run manufacturing for our phones and Nest devices and other things, we haven't yet figured out how to let them sit at home and manufacture the things, so they need to be at the physical site. The second for what people historically think about software engineering community, we felt strongly that we wanted to have a balanced view of how people work. There is a certain set of, of work that happens best person to person in the office. Examples are design sessions, ideation, user experience. That's very hard to do 
with technology and not just because of um, the tools, but because the chemistry between people is harder to do in a digital media. Second, however, we find that our software engineers, when they did work themselves, they were extraordinarily productive working at home uh, because they didn't have distractions with meetings and interruptions and let's call it friends dropping by and so on and so forth. So we've gone to a model where our policy is basically if you decide that you want to work remotely forever because you have family constraints or things of that nature, you need to inform your manager and the manager and the vice president can decide if they're gonna let you work remotely forever. That's a tiny segment of our teams. The vast majority work three days at the office, two days at home. However, if you look at how they work at the office, it's not the same as though the five days are all equivalent. The three days at the office typically have a lot of meetings, design reviews, cross-functional meetings, for example, between our marketing teams and our product teams, because those happen much more effectively at the office, and then they work offline when they're writing software themselves. We've done a lot of things to bring that chemistry in teams back. Sometimes it's just small, fun events, but a lot of it, I'll be honest, we are going through this transition. The closest analogy that we say that the world has been through is if you look at retail stores before e-commerce and retail stores after e-commerce, technology really fundamentally redefined the nature of the physical space. And we think office space will go through that same transition. So a lot of our processes have been observing what our own teams are struggling with, what our clients are struggling with, and helping them use it in new ways. Actually, I do have one more question before I open it up. I can imagine there, it's, there's been times of high stress in the last couple of years. Any tips and tricks around how you manage your, your own personal effectiveness and uh, keep the energy high and uh, keep going? My wife tells me when you joined Google, you had black hair and it's now almost white. So that's how she sees me. Uh, I'll be honest, uh, the, I've tried to do just a couple of things myself. The first one as CEO, I need to be careful on, people tend to listen to what a CEO says. And so I'm extraordinarily careful on how many things I'm asking our teams to focus on. We have quarterly cycles on which we try to improve things. And I may, in many cases, defer something, even though it appears to be a problem, even though it's incredibly annoying, it's a problem, but in trying to make sure the organization can solve some important things and get it right, I may move it out for a few quarters so that people don't feel like there's always a crisis du jour. So that's one thing. The second thing is there's always demands on time and you know, demands from our board, demands from you know, leadership across Alphabet, demands for time with governments, demands for time with customers, demands for time with engineers. So I'm very careful with getting time for myself to make sure that in all the kind of busyness with scheduled things, you're not losing track of what are the long-term things that 
we need to think about as a product or as a business opportunity, say block four or five hours a week, a couple of times a week so that I can really focus on what's the fundamental things, the most important things to think about it has helped us stay focused throughout the period. But a lot of that also comes, you know, to be honest, credit to our team because I tend to trust them to do a lot more and give them the opportunity to drive things. And if uh, I always ask teams when they send me something, give me a recommendation. You can say here are the three choices, but here's what we recommend because it's a way of having them take more and more responsibility for the business as well. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com, or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to subscribe on your podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, which includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page on mckinsey.com SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.